0: hello everyone welcome back to danger on delmarva a podcast that explores the tragedies and disasters that have occurred on the delmarva peninsula an area in the mid-atlantic region that encompasses delaware maryland to the east of the chesapeake bay bridge and virginia to the north of the chesapeake bay bridge tunnel my name is rhonda Franny jefferson and I will be your host to take you down the sometimes treacherous paths that wind around Delmarva. Delmarva, a little piece of heaven that has beaches, tax-free shopping, one of the best children's hospitals in the world, and of course, home to our current president. But really, how many people hear the name Delaware or Delmarva and think, "Ooh, I'm going there? Well, while we do have our faithful tourists, and Carl if you're listening you know who you are but really not too many people in the west or Midwest really know that much about Delaware when I went to college even just a few hours north which was five hours away from my home and only three hours away from the very northern tip of Delaware I was met with oh I love New England or what state is that in or of course for those who you know, our movie aficionados from the 80s, you might be thinking, hmm, we're in Delaware. Okay, I even used that line in my trailer for this show, because at least for my generation, that was a quintessential response to saying that you lived in Delaware. Delaware is pretty much known as being the first state, being the first to ratify the Constitution. Now, one thing that our small wonder of a state never wanted to have was a first in serial killers. And I admit, as I was very young at the time of these events, I didn't even know about him. I also didn't know that there had been a show about him on Oxygen channel, Mark of a Serial Killer, until someone mentioned it while I was looking for topics. Then again, being in a small rural area, there are limitations, and at the time of the airing of that episode i was going through a more than two-month ordeal of trying to get my cable and internet fixed and pretty much that company has a monopoly in my area for cable and internet so i missed a lot of shows during that time so thank you very much to the reddit user who suggested it also just a quick note there are a couple things that i want to cover at the end of the episode So if you're interested, please wait a couple of seconds after the end of the story to hear those. Before I begin, I do want to say that this podcast reflects my personal interest in the exploration of how how or why an event occurred to try to understand the reasoning behind the acts and decisions of others. I mean, no disrespect to any parties mentioned in the podcast. I have obtained facts for this information through all publicly available sources. In some cases, personal observations about the area may be discussed. This podcast is produced for informational purposes, and as I have gleaned the information from publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee everything involves accuracy, completeness, or validity. I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation, and time delays i.e there are further updates after the publication of that podcast episode now as a warning each episode may discuss injury death emotional and mental health and may contain triggers regarding various instances i must say that this episode does have more graphic features to it than others that i cover and I will do my very best to limit descriptions to the minimum minimum of what we need to know. Now, as an additional warning, the case has some aspects that were just truly horrifying. The killers victims deserve dignity and respect. So I will do my best to present the information in this way. Also, just a couple of smaller things throughout the research on this I did find some conflicting pieces of information. What I did was try to find a different verification so if it was stated in more than one place, um, going through everything and then afterwards listening to the documentary that was on Oxygen which is a pretty big source of my information. I was able to kind of pull everything together to where it made more sense. When I get to some of those areas, I may mention it again. A lot of times it was really to do with the timeline. And some of the articles presented it in a chronological version, which does make sense initially, but the order in which the bodies were found did not actually happen chronologically. So it's taking pieces of that information, like the date found or the date disappeared to really make things make more sense. So I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm listening to or watching a documentary pretty much about anything and I just need to stop it. I found that you know, being a mother actually has changed the way I look at things and I'm very very sensitive to you know hearing what's happened to another person because I cannot imagine something like that happen happening to one of my children and so if you've listened to some of my previous episodes well first thank you for that but you know or may know that I'm interested in not only how things work but what we can learn from them when they fall apart. This involves tragedies that were man-made, you know, looking at cues of where we may have missed something and you know something severe happened after that. Or just trying to figure out how to prevent another tragedy from occurring. And I realize that in doing so we can try to, you know, make things or make the world a better place for our children and that's really the whole purpose of being a parent is to try to make things the best as you can for your children, make sure they have everything that they can or need to succeed, but it's protection as well and we have to know about things. We have to be able to see things and watch for those cues. So, you know, seeing myself, seeing how I've changed from before I had kids to after I had kids, I think it's almost instinctual that I want to know as much as I can so that no matter what situation we're in, I can do my best to help protect my children. However, there are just some things that no one, whether it's a parent, someone else in the community, um, law enforcement, sometimes things happen and we don't see it coming. And when it comes to serial killers. We may have a desire to understand their motivation. A lot of times we can't, you know, even if we've watched every episode of Criminal Minds, that's, that's out there. You know, when it comes to killing, you know, we may question and shake our heads at the killer who, you know, murdered a loved one to inherit money, or they acted in the heat of the moment during an argument and even though we find it abhorrent we despise what was done at least we can see a motive when it comes to serial killers it's not always that clear there's things that may have happened in the past that we may not necessarily know about And in this particular case there is very little known about this individual other than what was presented to the outside world and what makes it even more difficult in the case of serial killers is that you know there is no clear motivation to begin with and the killer usually doesn't know the victim. There is nothing there to tie the killer to the victim in terms of a romantic interest or financial concerns so it's almost like detectives are starting with less than zero and then they have to try to dig themselves out of this slippery pit Now to define a serial killer using a verbatim definition that I did find online, and I will have that linked in the description as I do all of my sources, a serial killer is typically a person who murders three or more people, usually in service of abnormal psychological gratification, with the murders taking place over more than a month and including a significant period of time in between them. While most authorities set a threshold of three murders, others extend it to four or lessen it to two. My thought on why some people may lessen it to two is that sometimes law enforcement is able to catch the killer before they actually have a chance to kill again. Based on a psychological profile, it may be assumed or even almost guaranteed that they would try to kill again, but thankfully they were stopped before then. Now the term serial killer can be traced back um, to a few usages in some criminal training um, handbooks or you know classes, but the first written record that many people find is in a book by John Brophy. It's called The Meaning of Murder. But the term didn't make it into the common vernacular until the 1990s. And I actually found that a little surprising um, I thought it was probably earlier, but there is an interesting statistic that I'll have in a moment. You know, myself, um, you know, really kind of growing up in the 80s, but not until the 90s did I really start to, you know, absorb the world around me to notice things and want to reach out and learn more things. So, you know, I don't know if it's just I associate it as a word that I've heard for a very long time because I started hearing it more in the 90s, um, or if I did just happen to hear it more in the 80s. But according to Wikipedia, yes, I used Wikipedia, the first time it was used in a newspaper was in 1981 to describe the Atlanta child killer. Now, just using the New York Times itself for reference, the term was used 233 times in the New York Times in the 1980s, so 233. Now throughout the 1990s, it was used a staggering 2,514 times. So you know, that means it just jumped you know, exponentially from the 80s to the usage in the 90s. Now you may ask, why am I going over all of this? I think it's important to understand that to a jury at that time who may not have been as familiar with the term, they had to then become or go face to face with someone in the courtroom and instead of being presented with a case where one spouse killed another for life insurance or, you know, somebody got mad because of an affair or something like that. Instead, they were looking at this man across the courtroom who didn't know his victim. And I think that to most people, that would not make sense. You know, even with our knowledge of serial killers now, it doesn't make sense. So during the years of 1987 to 1988, Northern Delawareans, especially were about to become familiar with this term in a way that no one would ever want to. On November 29, 1987, Shirley Ellis set out on a mission. She had a platter of food for a friend that was in the hospital, and she wanted to take them Thanksgiving dinner. Caring was in Shirley's nature. Though she had previously been a sex worker, she was working on being a nurse. That was her dream. She had even bought the books for upcoming classes. But Delaware, even now, is not really a public transportation state, though it is much better in Newcastle County where this took place. But even myself, after living in Newcastle County in the mid-2000 aughts, catching buses was still sometimes hard work, and that was with the help of the Internet and finding out the information. You know, this was the late 1980s, and that was not as readily available she would have to walk 14 miles that night. So, you know, given the time frame, she decided to hitchhike. And unfortunately, Shirley would never be seen alive, alive again. Later that same night, two teenagers were just looking for a private spot, but they found something that probably still haunts them to this day. Now, this is part of the story that does give some details as a warning But, you know, I'm having trouble finding words to describe what was done to Shirley, as I do want to respect her. Also, some wording is not always appreciated by YouTube. And, you know, I do upload the audio to YouTube, so I want to make sure that it's both respectful and allowed. But Shirley was partially clothed. And speaking as a mother, again... I hope that those teenagers did not understand what else had been done to her. Shirley had been tormented with common everyday work tools transforming into weapons. And he strangled her and also used a hammer to inflict blunt force trauma. Her hands and feet had been bound at one point, but when she was found, her legs were parted. She was exposed from the waist up and she had duct tape in her hair, indicating that he probably used duct tape to gag her. The scene also showed that she was most likely dumped there. The ground was wet, yet there weren't any footprints or really any sign of a struggle. However, it appeared that the killer may have stayed on a concrete area and dumped the body. There was no ID on the victim and fingerprints did not produce an ID. So Detective Joe Swiskey of the Delaware State Police took pictures of tattoos and showed them around to other detectives who were able to ID her as a sex worker. Her family said that Shirley was kind and caring and she wanted to help those in need, but she never got the chance to fulfill her dream of being a nurse. And that is sometimes the hardest part when someone is killed prematurely. That they were denied the right to see their dreams come to fruition and their families were robbed of seeing their loved ones bask in their success. So this was shocking to the small state. Yes, at this time, violent crime in Delaware had started to increase. 1986 violent crimes reported at 2,738 incidents. 1987 had 2,862 but by the time 1993 ended, there were a total of 5,136 crimes that year. That's almost doubled the number in less than 10 years. Maybe what Newcastle County was about to endure was a precursor for things to come. The way that Shirley Ellis had been murdered was horrific. However, the medical examiner did note that there were no signs of I'm going to phrase it as a more personal assault. Police of course checked into her personal life, but there was nothing to indicate who could have done this to her. Route 13 really was the main corridor through Delaware at that time, but also being such a small state, a truck driver could easily veer off and, you know, take another route maybe and not really lose a lot of time. So. There was a theory at that time that a truck driver had done this, rolling through Delaware, but leaving before any trace of him could be found. Seven months later, on June 28, 1988, another body was found. This seven months was the cooling off period that many serial killers take, usually with the time frame accelerating after each kill. This time he took a young woman named Catherine DeMorrow a 31-year-old who was a sex worker, though it's not entirely known if she was actually working that night. Construction workers at an apartment complex found her body the following morning. And this gives me chills because I know that apartment complex from where I lived in that part of the state. The scene was extremely reminiscent of Shirley Ellis. She again had been tormented, again with working tools being transformed implements to build things to implements of pain and destruction. Included also were the binding, ligature, and blunt force trauma. She was also not sexually assaulted. What was different was that something had been left. Catherine was found to have blue fibers on her body with some small red fibers as well on her face. Coincidentally, the blue fibers came from a rug that was produced by the Dupont Company. Dupont is huge in Delaware, even though the company has now been absorbed more by Exalta. Um, you know, we don't really have what we call the Dupont plants around here. You know, meaning the production facilities. But the name still shows up about every thirty feet if you live in Newcastle County, whether it's on buildings or signs. Dupont was and still is very well known in the area. What they did find was that this carpet was not produced for a long period of time though, so it was pretty rare. That could work to the detective's advantage. Catherine was a divorced mother. She would sometimes go to the bars on Route 40 and would also hitchhike. So it seemed like he was targeting women in this area. Also now, to be clear, as clear as I can be in this case, the killer has been called a few things. The Route 40 killer, Route 13 killer, I-95 killer, and corridor killer. So yes, these names all pertain to roads, and if anyone thought truck driver again, that would be completely understandable. There are areas where all of these roads meet, and when I go up to Newcastle County, there are interchanges all through these areas and i can almost guarantee that i will be on all three of these routes at some point during that day so again they're very very close very easily to get onto and exit from so you know anyone really if they you know were picked up from route 40 at one point you know they could have also hitchhiked at Route 13 at other times, so really just a lot of connections. Now, the detective for Catherine DeMoro's case was from a different law enforcement agency as handling Shirley Ellis. So this call came in to a Detective Hedrick from the Newcastle County Police. And though the crimes were months apart, Hedrick did remember that a case that the Delaware State Police had that seemed very similar. So after some consultation, the police felt that these two crimes had too many similarities to be anyone other than the same color. They reached out to the FBI for help, recognizing that they were not really used to working on these types of cases. The FBI's behavioral science unit said that most likely the perpetrator was a white male, probably 25 to 35, and he was probably also in construction. He would kill though until he was caught and he also wanted control. They suggested that they might actually make the killer come to the police. Though, of course, the killer not intentionally doing so. So the police felt there was only one option. They put a decoy out. Now, Officer Renee Tashner took the job. And let me tell you, she was the right woman for the job when we think about 1988, it's really not that long ago, but looking at it from my viewpoint, you know, I was a very young child and that does seem a long time ago. However, looking at, you know, just the evolution of you know, human culture of science, you know, it's in some ways it is close, but in other ways, it's slight years away. In this case, there are things that were really light years away and things that we would know or deduce right now was pretty new at that time. So, you know, did, um, Officer Tashner did go out and walk the areas that it seemed that the killer had been frequenting. So this is where we start to get in, get into timelines, and this is where the oxygen documentary, It was one of the episodes of Mark of a Serial Killer. It really helped bring things together because um, a lot of the articles did skip a part, but again, it was whether we were looking at the order of disappearance or looking at the order of when someone was actually found. So looking at this time, it was in the 1980s, as I said before, internet though, or instant access to some things, and so there may have been some confusion, too, as to these dates or timelines. But a little less than two months after Catherine Demaro went missing, Detective Hedrick got a call about someone else. Any missing woman who fit the description of the previous two victims, it was instructed that they should reach out directly to um, Detective Hedrick. That way he would be made aware immediately. Now, looking at this time frame, the period between the cooling off period was decreasing. That was if, in fact, this missing woman had anything to do um, with the serial killer. But the missing woman's name was Margaret Lynn Finner. She was 28 and was also a sex worker. She had last been seen getting into a blue van. Blue corresponded with what had been found on the second victim's body, the blue carpet fibers. So this blue van was soon to be an extremely important clue as well. Margaret Finner did things that she had to do to make ends meet. And as expected, her loved ones weren't always necessarily happy with it. But what they could say is she did not have a history of going missing. So this was extremely, extremely unusual for her. In the meantime, officer Renee Tashner walked up and down the streets. Margaret had gone missing from Route 30, so Renee was moved there. She was also equipped with a wire so that detectives could hear what was going on. And they also observed from a distance, so they would be there to help. Police also did follow up on anyone that seemed interesting per these conversation, but there were no hits. But then one day, Officer Tashner had a man approach her in a van, and she could see blue carpet all around. His conversation was overtly sexual, and he seemed extremely interested. But then all of a sudden, he just took off. After police ran the plates, they found that this man was a schoolteacher married but the police were still able to get a warrant to search his property including the van. They found an area in the attic where there were some very interesting toys to say the least. So they collected fibers and the police waited for the confirmation knowing that they got their man. They start to investigate where he may have been during the time frames where the woman had initially gone missing. They contacted and questioned his friends and really this guy is a school teacher and i'm just trying to imagine what all of his friends must have thought but the fibers were not a match to this point the public had not been made aware that a serial killer was among us or at least one that was sus- suspected to be so this was quite a surprise to this dull marvelous little state But police knew that it was time to let the public know. So then, with each day that went by, people, of course young women especially, were getting more and more worried. On September 14th, 1988, Renee sees another blue van. He's been circling the area just over and over and over again. She thinks at least seven times. She tried to find a place that was secluded and he bit. He rolls down the window and Renee, as well as detective Hedrick described him as a shark. Detective Tajner plays things perfectly. She says she wants to make sure that no one else is in the van. So she wants the light turned on. Now I'm wondering at first why he did this, you know, just pretty much acquiescing to what She asks, especially as someone who wants to stay in control, but he's probably thinking to himself that, you know, the police have announced that there's a serial killer out there, so it makes sense she's gonna wanna check. So since he does know there's no one else in the van, he turns on the light. The van is literally covered, covered in blue carpet. And I mean, it's in places that carpet is not meant to be. So she acts interested kind of leans in and, you know, acts in a way that I have to say is perfect. She asked him why he did that with his van, you know, covering it completely in the blue carpet. And he said that the person he bought it from had covered it in the carpet. So she casually just, you know, runs her fingers over the carpet. And even though she had not been instructed to do this, she grabs some fibers. So this will come up later on, but while reviewing the case, I began to think, okay, well, I'm not a legal expert, but I'm wondering if she can actually still do that, you know, as far as getting the evidence admitted into, um, you know, the court, whether or not she could actually do that without getting a warrant. But then I also thought he literally opened the door to her. He opened the door to let her look in and even if he had just put down the window he let her have contact with it. So while she's standing there at the door, the man does start to get agitated and he he even lunges at her to try to get her into the van. Now, Detective Hedrick saw this and he was about ready to pull his gun and intervene, but officer Tashner closed the door and told the person in the van that she had a headache from being stoned all day. So he left, but the, det- the detectives followed him. They waited outside his house, but eventually the lights went out. So it looked like he had gone to bed. Now, unlike today where there's computers and police cars, they actually had to go back to the office to find out who this was. Stephen Pinnell, an electrician, a married man, a father, a man who'd received degrees in criminology and even applied to be a police officer but he was turned down. The fibers that were collected were sent to the FBI, but at this time they can't arrest him. They really have nothing on him. But unfortunately on 920, a body is found in the Chesapeake and Delaware or C and D Canal. But it's not Margaret Finner. So this means that there's at least four women now. This woman was Michelle Gordon. Her brother said that she was whimsical and happy, but she would also hitchhike. She had even asked him, paraphrasing at some point, about whether or not he had heard about the killer, and wouldn't it be something if she were a victim? But while Michelle had many, many similarities to the others, virtually identical, there was one huge major difference. Michelle was literally scared to death. The ME said her heart gave out. She did have cocaine in her system, so that did contribute um, because in some ways, after all that she was going through, her heart's just ability to cope with the trauma stopped. So, you know, in essence, she was scared to death. Then a woman named Kathleen Meyer disappeared. She was hitchhiking as well, And an off-duty officer saw her get into a van and took the license plate down and it didn't match pinnell's and again i admit based on some of the articles and the way they made things seem i was mad that at that time pinnell had not been apprehended or wondered why the police officer hadn't just arrested him but i did take a step back from my emotions and i realized that at this point there was nothing to hold him on it had been a relatively short time for that era. And you know, while Tajnar had collected the fibers, they had not heard back from the FBI yet. But the case was given a task force of 60 officers and an unlimited budget. Police followed this man. From the, when he would get home, it looked like he would lead a normal life, but then he would leave in the middle of the night. Then they got the call that they needed. The FBI called to say that the fibers were a microscopic match. This allowed the officers to get a warrant. and When they entered his home, they noticed that there were holes in the wall. When they talked to his wife, she advised them that sometimes Pinnell lost his temper. They found duct tape, which they later matched to the duct tape found on the victims. There was blood after they pulled up the carpet in the van. It was Catherine DeMauro's. There was also a red fiber similar to the one that was found on another victim. And then there was hair that was Michelle Gordon's. There was also a horrible violent movie that was found in the sh- in a shed with a VCR and TV. I'm not going to st- say the name of the movie, but he most likely got ideas from this film. Also, they did notice that there was a whole set of tools that were separate from the others. So interesting. They did think then that these tools could be the ones that he used on the woman. According to Swisco, he said that he knocked on the door and said, Stephen, it's time. Stephen asked for an attorney and literally there was nothing else to be said. He was quiet. On the day after his arre- arrest, deer hunters find a badly decomposed body near where Michelle Gordon had been found. This time it was Margaret Venner, the woman who disappeared between Demarro and Gordon. However, in that state of decomposition and exposure to the elements, they could not find anything that would connect Pinnell to her but they did feel that they had enough to prosecute for Ellis, DeMorrow, and Gordon. So, you know how I like to solve puzzles, try to put things together. Unfortunately, this one doesn't really give us much to go on. Yes, we know who did it, how he did it, but not truly the why. Where some serial killers may like to talk and get notoriety, almost wearing their kills like a badge, Pennell didn't about the only thing that came out about him is that sometimes his relationship with his mother could be a little tumultuous. It was reported that she once criticized his parenting and said something to the extent of that she would have to spank him and put him to bed, talking about Panel. So this could mean that being treated in this way, even though he was a grown man, made him feel like he needed to strike out and be the one in control. So in September of 1989, he goes to trial. So this is around a year after the last victim was found. Information about his signature is reviewed, the ligature, tools, duct tape. The jury was shown that movie I mentioned, and that did not go over too well with them and did not win Penelope points, to say the least. And as I suspected, the attorneys for Pinnell argued that the fibers were obtained illegally, but the judge went along with the same lines that I thought they were in plain sight. He had opened the door for her. So I'm about to tell you about another first. Those fibers had DNA that belonged to the victims. Now, this was 1989, you know, during this trial. This was a time when people didn't really know anything about DNA. You know, as much as the common person may know right now about DNA, yeah, there was nothing. Nothing as compared to, you know, what we know today. So basically it was giving this information to the jurors and trying to break it down to them in a way that they could understand as this had never really been used. And in fact, um, to quote an article that I read, it was the first trial in the United States that used DNA evidence as absolute legal evidence. Gabelin, who was the judge, had to set a legal precedent and listen to the options of experts and scientists who helped verify the DNA evidence. And I know this probably isn't a first nationwide but it's a first for me hearing about something like this happening. His lawyer, though it did not necessarily say which one or when it happened, the attorney stopped representing him. He couldn't stand the things that he had heard. Pinnell had told the attorney of a kill and showed no remorse and showed no emotion. Now, this attorney testified, which I found a little confusing because, you know, of. attorney client privilege and everything, but the jury did hear this and they were also shocked, but shocked at what the attorney had to say. So Pennell decided to take the stand. And this would be interesting as no one really had spoken with him before, because when they arrested him, he just immediately asked for an attorney. But again, this did not go over too well for him. He was described as being cold and scary on the stand, and he showed disdain for his victims. The jury actually was out, though, for seven days on this, even though I did see one article that said eight. But I was surprised that he was found guilty of killing Shirley Ellis and Catherine DeMorrow, but not Michelle Gordon. This is because she did not have all of the same injuries, she did not have the hammer used for the blunt force trauma so it left just enough reasonable doubt that he was acquitted of her murder. I kind of think that the hair in the van should have been enough but it wasn't so and I wasn't on the jury. Oh and this also set a record for the longest hearing in Delaware history. So the jury did recommend two life sentences. The attorney appealed based on the continuing argument that the fibers were obtained illegally. They lost, but then, you know, there's, there was new evidence regarding Meyer, DNA of Myers was found. He was indicted for that murder and he asked to dismiss his attorney at that time. And that request was granted and he pled no contest, stating that he did not want to put his family through a trial. And if this was not a big enough surprise, he asked for the death penalty. So he got the death penalty, but all death penalties have an automatic appeal and go before the Supreme court. So let me add some more here. He is the only person who was not an attorney to present himself before the state Supreme court. He was the only one to ever ask for death like that. And in this case, the justices asked no questions, which was highly unusual. One person did say that he had never seen that before. So, Panel got the death penalty. Now, as far as some of the inconsistencies that I'd seen, um, sometimes it says that Michelle Gordon was acquitted or the case against her um, or for her murder was acquitted other times it may say that he was only indicted and charged with Ellison Um in another time it says that that Gordon um, the case for her was um, he was acquitted but that he was indicted again for that which is where I find the biggest issue because of double jeopardy if in fact he had been, Um, acquitted of that charge he could not be um, charged again so you know there's again just some inconsistency so just if you're reading through um, you know be a little questioning if you see something that doesn't make sense just as you know you see if he was acquitted for one of the murders but then found or at least it stated that he was indicted and tried again later that doesn't necessarily make sense and this was within the same article so um like i said just be pretty careful if you're reading through this so during this whole time he never did admit his guilt while speaking to um, the supreme court of delaware he spoke in the third person um he even or his wife though was not willing to take the death penalty she contacted the ACLU and an attorney represented her saying that the psychiatric evaluations that Pinnell had gone through were not complete and they needed more time for evaluation. This was rejected by the courts. On March 14, 1992, Stephen Pinnell was the first man executed in Delaware in 46 years. No one was ever charged in Finner's case. And my thoughts are no one ever will be. There just was not any evidence left on the body. And Meyer's body has never been found. So there were a lot of firsts here. But it's still frustrating that we don't know that that much about Pinnell. In some articles, it's not even clear if he was born in 1957 or 1958 but I've seen 1957 be more definitive in some articles. There's just nothing known really about his early life, only that glimpse that we ever saw with that one interaction with his mother. Did he experience this throughout his life and that created a need for him to feel in control of women? If that was the case, then it would appear that he had a domineering mother and a subservient wife. I do find some aspects confusing beyond what I've already discussed. With Ellis and Demorrow, they were put in locations where they could be found rather quickly. But Gordon was put in or by the water. And Finner was hidden and not found for three months. But Myers still never been found. It seems like he may have been evolving to me. I'm no psychologist, but it just seems strange that there would be such a quick change in how the victims were placed was it a way of him saying that he was in control and that he could change up his signature whenever he wanted did something happen when gordon died where he didn't actually get to kill her in that sense though let's face it it seems like he did to say that he didn't and that she died of a heart attack seems more to me like a technicality she did die of fright and she would not have been in that position if not for panel But by Michelle dying like this, did he feel like he was losing control and hiding Meyer's body gave him ultimate control? And again, no psychologist here, just some thoughts. I guess one of the lessons that we can learn, as I think we can learn with any serial killer, is that when people say, oh, but he or she looks so normal, is that we can never really judge what's on the inside of someone that we don't know how or if one little thing in their life might change the way that they look at things, that their point of view might change drastically, and that you know they go on to commit some of these heinous acts. I guess in this case, we'll never really know entirely. Something that we can take away from this case too is that while Pinnell treated these women horribly, and horribly is really just too weak of a word for what he did, But the women who frequented Route 40 were appreciative of the way the cases were handled. You know, throughout the story, I have mentioned contradictions and, you know, piecing together part of the story from different articles. And thankfully, the Oxygen series Mark of a Serial Killer helped pull everything together. And no, I'm not like promoting that episode or that show per se, I'm just saying in this particular um, case, it was very, very helpful. But Kathleen Jennings, who was the prosecutor at that time and is now the Attorney General, received a bouquet of flowers. And while some articles have slightly different wording, I've decided to go with the one that came from Jennings herself. She said that the card read, from the woman of Route 40, thank you for treating us with dignity. So thank you everyone for listening. Now I just wanted to let everyone know that um, I did start what's called a mini last week, um, it's, you know, since I'm looking at my long form episodes at doing them every two weeks, I want to just create some shorter content um, that either, you know, follow up on previous cases if there have been any updates that focus on cases that are ongoing but, you know, we haven't really learned a lot about, Or, you know, just a few stories that seem interconnected or have commonalities and are just interesting. So depending on the current news at that time, um, these minisodes may or may not be on the off weeks from the long episode. But I will try my very best also. Now, also my podcasts were featured in a Delaware zine. Yes, I did say multiple podcasts. I do have another one that chronicles my thoughts, experiences, and the obstacles that I have of living with a rare and invisible chronic illness. I will link both the article and my See the Invisible podcast in the description if you would like to see anything about them. And finally, I really enjoy making content. You know, as I just said, I do have a condition where mobility is hindered at times, as well as just my overall health. So doing something like these, um, it helps me stay um, mentally active and feeling like I'm contributing something. So you know, I want to be doing something. And if you've read the article um, that was in the Delaware Zine, I do open, some, open up some and make it known that I've known at least eight people who've been murdered in five separate incidents. They were all different scenarios, um, and also, you know, there was a different level of familiarity with them from being very close to being very distant, so, you know, sometimes the ones that were especially the closer ones just do keep going around and around in my head because a lot of times I do see cases that remind me of, you know, these different cases or at least part of it, so... You know even now and some of them happened well over 20 years ago and happened when I was a teenager still a kid myself I sometimes still have those questions that come into my mind of what if I'd been more observant what if someone else had stepped in who had the authority to any of those thoughts just come into my mind and you know I thought that it might just help to understand why I do have such a passion for some of these cases Um, you know and truly having these thoughts about what can we do to try to prevent things from happening again it does help fuel my passion for making these podcasts you know we never know if one small thing can make a difference to someone and if we can observe patterns and recognize signs Maybe we can prevent some of these tragedies from happening. So if you are interested in this type of podcast, please subscribe, share, or leave a comment. This helps reach more people as the podcast algorithms that be make it easier to find the episodes. So thank you all for hanging in there and I really do hope that you all have a great week and I will be talking to you soon. Bye now.